The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Zoomies, welcome to part two of the recording with Major Drew Whitney. Make sure to listen through the first episode to bring some context to the ideas that we will be discussing in this one. In this episode, we discuss the rewarding and challenging parts of the job, as well as the decision calculus that goes into separating. Tune in for all the details, nuclear dot. This aircraft is obviously extremely capable, more capable of like a lot of different things that mm. other aircraft can't do, like single-handedly mm-hmm. need some sort of help. Right. Um, that kind of relates to the SOCOM culture in general of mm-hmm. special warfare people wanting to like push the envelope, n- try new things, and like just be resourceful, yeah. get the job oh, yeah, done yeah. by whatever means. Okay. Um, what type of things do you? were you involved with in terms of being resourceful and like doing something new? Absolutely. So, um, great question, man. The, I, I will, I will say, uh, just based on what you just said that the, perhaps one of the, um, misperceptions of the special operations community is that they like, they, sort of operate on their own a little bit and they're their own, their mm-hmm. own thing. Um, and, and we have these things called the, the, um, soft truths and I'm going to read them out to you just cause I think they're <laughs> incredibly important in understanding the culture of SOCOM in general. Right? Okay. Um, and this is something they kind of beat into us in the schoolhouse and, and wanted to make sure that we understood, um, was, and the first one is humans are more important than hardware. Second one is quantity quality is better than quantity. Uh, third is special operations forces cannot be mass produced. Fourth is competent special operations forces cannot be created after emergencies occur. And the last one is, and this is really important based on what you just said, uh, most special operations require non-soft assistance. Um, so one thing that we spent a lot of time and energy on was working with other organizations getting cooperation and, and realizing like we, we couldn't do it all on our own, even, you know, if, even if sometimes we wanted to, mm-hmm. um, and nor, nor should we. Right. Uh, so there were a lot of big muscle air force stuff that we needed. Um, you know, even to just get out to Japan, like we needed so much help from the outside, uh, when we wanted to relocate, uh, quite a bit of material and aircraft, like a lot of times that came with us asking for, big, you know, bigger organizations, non-soft organizations for help. Um, so I would say, you know, SOCOM and soft culture as I experienced and saw it, um, was, yeah, let's go, you know, let's go try these, you know, try different things, try new things, um, think about things differently, but also, Hey, like we can't, we can't completely separate ourselves from the, you know, the quote unquote big air force. Like we, we will need, we will need their help. Mm -hmm. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't separate ourselves. We got to maintain these relationships, right? Like we, uh, there was a destroyer squadron, a big Navy destroyer squadron that I like, 
I main, I helped maintain a relationship with with my last unit because otherwise we would have, you know, there's a lot of blue in the Pacific, right? So you kind of got to be friends with the Navy. <laughs> um, so so yeah, just to dispel that that particular um, stereotype uh, is is you know, hey, we we recognize. I mean, it's in our it's in our core truths uh, of SOCOM to to maintain good relationships and get solid conventional force, um, support, absolutely necessary. Um, so yeah, one, one, but kind of going back to, to answering that question, um, I had a couple opportunities in my career, uh, and one stands out specifically that was just fantastic, um, leadership, followership and, and growth opportunity for me. And it was an instance where we were essentially trying something that more or less hadn't been tried before. Like Mm -hmm. maybe onesie twosie, someone had gone and done a proof of concept maybe, but by and large there was, there was really nothing written down about it. Uh, and this was, uh, operating, uh, hoisting people on and off of a, uh, a ship that was not air capable, didn't have a landing platform. Uh, and it was, um, not, not certainly not built to hoist things to and from from the air, uh, and it was one of those because if if you have a smaller um, if you have a smaller boat uh, like a speedboat or something that that's more maneuverable, typically our our TTPs were um, to hover you know five knots forward ish uh, in a straight line. The boat would come up behind the V twenty two and would hold you know they would be position holding on us. And they would do hoists kind of to and from that boat, um, which was easy for us, right? Like five knots forward. A monkey could do five knots forward uh, in a stable hover, uh, hopefully. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, the the opposite side of that spectrum was like landing on a big Navy ship. Big ship, very easy to, well, not very, but easy to see what's Mm -hmm. around you. um, Relatively easy to hit the spot that you're trying to land at. So this was this ship was like the perfect size to be the worst of both worlds. It was too small to really see any of the ship other than just the the communications mast and maybe the uh, you know the flags that were up on top of it, um, and also too big to uh, be able to maneuver behind us. So it was that like us oh, okay. trying to combine two disparate skill sets. Uh, that didn't necessarily agree with each other to, to do something. And it was, um, you know, it was, took a ton of teamwork, right? Cause this was basically, I couldn't really see the ship very, very well at all. I could kind of see the masts bobbing up in front of me, but th- I mean, then you make the, glass the floors, waters. Y- y- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, I don't, I do not want glass floors in my aircraft. Thank you. Um, uh, and then, you know, couldn't really see up ahead and you know, the, the boat's moving, the water's moving, we're moving. Uh, and then, you know, you got your flight engineer in the back, uh, which like, here's my, here's my like plug for, uh, enlisted flight crew. I think CV 22, you know, flight engineers, and I'm sure I'll probably get shot down (laughs) for this, but like, I think CV 22 flight engineers are the most, uh, competent, hardworking and skilled, uh, enlisted aviators out there, like bar none. I, I just absolutely believe that, uh, based Big on my statement. experience. Uh, yeah. Big statement. Uh, and honestly, dude, they are, uh, incredibly capable. They're, they're a combination load master flight engineer and gunner. 
uh, and like a little bit of navigator in there too. So mm -hmm. like these guys are extremely competent and their, and their schoolhouse is very difficult. So, um, like, you know, you meet a flight engineer, a CB 22 flight engineer, like shake their hand. Cause that is like, that is a serious, like, I don't know how they do it sometimes, man. Like these guys just get the crap kicked out. Of them. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, you know, flight engineer in the back that day that we're, we're trying this thing out is just jobbing it, man. He's like, he's working with the team in the back, talking to the team, figuring out what they want to do, keeping track of the iterations, right? Cause you're not always in radio contact with who you're working with. Um, you know, if someone's moving up and down the hoist, they can't hear you. So it, there's just a lot of moving parts, right? Um, so he's counting, Hey, this is this iteration. We have this many to go. He's tracking that. Uh, he's also running the hoist physically with his hand and guarding the hoist with his other hand. So he's, he's moving the hoist cable around. Um, and he is passing information up to the guys up front, the, the pilots. Um, and he is trying to station keep the aircraft over this ship because he's the only one that can actually yeah. see a sizable portion. He's oh. the one that can actually see the place that we're trying to hoist to and from, right? So it's like it's like one guy, a lot on one guy's shoulders, right? And it just smoked it, man. Like this dude, um, great, great friend of mine, John Barry, uh, absolutely fantastic individual, just crushed it. Um, and so, you know, these this opportunity really stands out to me as like, it was an opportunity to go out and, and you know, up to that point, I, we had had a couple times where we went out to the ships and kind of saw them and flew around them a little bit. But this is the first time we had done it like with people on board to and from the deck. And like, you know, we were to, before and after sitting down at the restaurant, like writing stuff down on a, on a piece of paper of like, Hey, here's how we think we should do this. And then after the fact coming back and saying, okay, line all of that out. Cause that was stupid. Let's not do it that way. <laughs> Let's do it this way or whatever. And we, and you know, even on the fly, right? Like in the middle of the iterations, Hey man, you know, I'm talking to my wingman cause two ship operations. So he would come in, uh, you know, my flight lead would come in, do his work. I'd be flying circles overhead and then we would swap, right? He would go high, I would go low and I'd go in, do a couple iterations, you know, hoist up and down, hoist up and down. And so, you know, mid midway through, the iterations, it was like, oh, hey, man, this, you know, we should tr let let's try this. I'm gonna try this, this go, um, and and see if this works better. I'm gonna I'm gonna fly a little bit lower. I'm gonna fly a little bit at an angle so I can see more of the ship, but I can keep the rotor wash off of the body of the ship to keep from injuring people, right? Because mm -hmm. like rotor wash in the V22 is a pretty pretty dangerous thing. You gotta kind of take yeah. it seriously, right? You don't want, you certainly don't want to blow somebody off the ship into the water. Like That's that is like big big no no, right? <clears throat> so. Um, just the, the combination of, and, and this is, you know, where I had leaders that I really respected in the community that, that, you know, they had, they had never done this. And these were the guys that were signing the orders to send us to go, to go try this out. They had never done this stuff. Um, so, you know, we sat down with them, briefed them, Hey, here's, you know, here's the risk. Um, here's what we think the risk is. Cause we don't really know cause we haven't really tried this. Um, and you know, but here's the potential reward, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, and that's in the, especially in the flying community, um, in the air force, that's, that's sort of the, the conversation, right? It's like risk reward, risk management isn't except no risk. It's except no unnecessary risk. Right. So mm -hmm. like you're, you're kind of doing this balancing act and, and at the bottom of our, you know, and we did this on paper, 
So you circle all the factors that you think were a factor that day for the flight, and then you tally them up. Everyone had point values. You say, here's our risk number for today. And if it's between these two, then the risk approval authority for the flight is the aircraft commander. If it's the next bracket of numbers, it's the squadron commander, so on and so forth. Um, and But a big portion of that down at the very bottom was you know, two things. It was list out your mitigating measures. So how do you mitigate all this risk, right? Like, can you, can you drive the, the, can you drive the risk down by doing something different? Um, like crew getting more rest or something. Crew getting more rest or, uh, Hey, we're going to take a break halfway through to like relax and, and, and just like blow some, blow some steam off or, Hey, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to do our first iteration during the day so that we can see everything so that, and this is speaking generally, not mm. necessarily for that, that hoist mission. Um, but like those were some risk mitigation procedures that we could go through is, Hey, we're going to do some iterations in the day first. We'll take off a bit early to get some day practice in so that before we get into night, we're feeling warmed up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so those were some examples. Uh, and, and at the bottom you'd see, Hey, you'd mark where you think on a, on a line, very technical process, <laughs> right? where is the, you know, where's the overall risk? What is your assessment of the overall risk? Is it high? Is it low? Is it medium? Like, um, and then potential benefit to the right of it. What's the potential benefit of this mission? Do you have a check ride going on where it's like, this guy needs to get his check ride done or he's going to go, you know, non, non current. And then that pro, you know, that's more of a burden on the rest of the squadron. Cause someone else has to step in, in an mm -hmm. operational scenario. Um, is there, you know, a, a foreign team on board, right? Is this a, is this like more than just us? Are we trying to build a relationship with a team? Um, then the potential benefit is much higher, right? So you're willing to accept higher risk if the reward is higher. Mm -hmm. Um, typically is how that works. And you can't, um, you can't eliminate all the risk out of flying. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Right. Uh, so what you can do is mitigate what you can eliminate unnecessary risk but the, you know, the best leaders that I, that I worked with, um, I always found were the ones that looked, looked at it and said, okay, you know, once the, once the flight goes out and as long as the decisions are made in a reasonable manner, right? If, if something, if something goes wrong, if one of those risk pieces manifests itself in the middle of the sortie and something goes wrong, you know, deal with it the best you can on, you know, with the information you have, uh, at hand. And if, you know, if something breaks or you, God forbid someone gets hurt, uh, sometimes you look at it after the fact and after the dust settles and, and, you know, the safety guys get their chance at it and the, um, hopefully not, but sometimes ask accident investigation, accident investigation board, uh, comes in and looks at who's at fault. But sometimes, um, and I would say a lot of times that, that decision is, is on the squadron commander's uh, shoulders in terms of, Hey, like, did anybody do anything wrong? Do, do I need, do I need, to, do I need to punish somebody? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can imagine it's an incredibly stressful, uh, decision, but, um, you know, there were a couple times where we bent a little bit of iron or, or an aircraft, um, you know, got, got bent up a little bit, um, and had to, you know, had to bring it home, do some repairs. And uh, luckily I was, thank God I was never in something that was like catastrophic. It was, mm -hmm. Uh, pretty small things, but the, the best leaders that I found were the ones that realized like, Hey, what we, you know, there is some natural risk in what we do. 
and sometimes there is just the cost of doing business. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, you and I talked about this last last time was, you know, you can't eliminate all the risk. Sometimes the risk manifests itself in ways that you weren't expecting. Um, and sometimes it manifests itself in a way you were expecting, but you still, you know, you yeah. still aren't fast enough, aren't smart enough, what, what, you know, whatever, fill in the blank uh, to, to keep something from happening and something happens, right? You break something on the aircraft or, um, you know, someone gets injured, right? And I've had both of those things happen on, on flights that I've been on. And um, it's, it was great to have leaders at the time, both times where they looked at the situation, they looked at all the facts, they, uh, you know, took it very seriously. And at the end of the day, they said, yep, sounds like the cost of doing business, right? They, they looked at it and they said, we did everything we could to keep everything as safe as possible, but the benefit was such that it, that it warranted going out with some risk on the table mm-hmm. and they were okay with that. Um, and what I, I think that's a good, that was a great, this is something I really looked up to was were the leaders who were willing to take that on their shoulders and say, Hey, look, if someone comes down from above and, and, and disagrees with me, like I'll go to the mat and say, yes, this was worth it. Um, and, and to, for them to impress that upon the people working for them was really important at getting, getting, uh, buy-in and aggressiveness from, from the frontline pilot corps and from the, from the air crew and the squadron, because they knew, you know, all the air crew knew, Hey, like I can go out there and really, and really try my hardest to do the best I possibly can. And I know that if something happens that, that I can't control, I know I've got people who will defend me because that, you know, there, there's that sort of mutual trust. Yeah. High uh, trust environment. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Great. You know, that's a great way of saying calling it high trust environment. It was a, it was a very high trust environment. And mm-hmm. that, that I think was probably my favorite part of, um, being an AFSOC and being with my last set of leadership. Um, you know, I would say that my last, uh, three years of leadership, uh, in the V22 community was, it was a high, high trust environment. And I knew that, you know, I, I was going to do my best to execute the objectives that, that our leadership wanted us to get at. And I knew that they were going to do their best to supply, equip, train, encourage, and protect me uh, when I needed it. So mm-hmm. I was really, you know, that was really rewarding. And I felt like that unit environment was very healthy. Mm-hmm. Speaking on rewarding, do you find a certain period of your career in the Osprey as specific or more rewarding than the, and another more rewarding than another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, honestly, my, like my time in Japan, man was, um, was huge. Standing up a unit was, was massively, um, fulfilling just the, the feeling of like, Hey, there was nothing before more or less nothing before we got here. And now we've got a building, we've got a patch, we've got, heritage and culture we've got you know uh entire support system um that was that was incredible the the feeling of you know between arriving there and leaving seeing the difference was was huge um that was that was a big part of it and then uh just the you know flying internationally and working with um working with you know not only joint partners but like international partners was was really 
enjoyable for me. Like I felt like I was out doing, doing the thing Mm -hmm. like that, that for me was, was, I felt like I was contributing in a real international sense to the U S defense policy, I Mm -hmm. guess is like the, the best way I can describe it. I felt like I was, my individual actions weren't lost in the mix Mm -hmm. that like I was able to do things and see the effect of those things with my own eyes, with my own experience, uh, which was just like, I feel like that's the, the epitome of rewarding. Oh, absolutely, man. Like my dude fight, you know, wherever you end up going, um, find yourself a place like that. Uh, find yourself a job or a place or a base or a unit or whatever gets you there where you say, I'm having an effect that matters so much to your sense of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I doubt you'll find anybody who disagrees. Mm-hmm. So on the other side of that CV 22 sword, what do you think we're kind of, I don't know, more challenging, whether you find it acute or chronic, mm-hmm. um, things that were really challenging yeah. in your career. Yeah, man. Um, so from a career aspect, um, one thing that I found, you know, frustrating was that, uh, and this is, you know, not, not specific to the V22 at all, um, was the shift towards more administrative burden, uh, you know, the, the, the longer I was in the, the importance and the weight that's applied on administrative performance, uh, felt like it started to outweigh the focus on aviation, um, which was, you know, and, and I, you, you know, you can understand something and have it frustrate you simultaneously. Like two things can mm-hmm. be true at once. Right. I understood the reason for it. Um, it still, it still was something that I felt as a negative, a negative thing for me. Um, some people get to that point and, and, and they say, yep, I'm ready to, you know, I'm ready to walk away from flying and focus more on, uh, administration and, and leading organizations and stuff like that and, and check the boxes that I need to check to, um, to get to higher leadership positions and mm-hmm. like to those people. Great. Like they have a great time. They, you know, a lot of those guys will stay in longer because they're they're already happy with that the path that they're that they're going down. Um, but I it, I didn't find it as pleasurable. Uh, so that was that was a challenge I found was that you know the, the the more time I spent not doing what I felt was immediately operationally relevant, um, you know the, the more time I spent doing stuff other than that uh, was less, less pleasurable, uh, for me. Is that part of the reason why you came to the Academy to teach soaring? Um, yeah, yes and no. I I knew that that wasn't going to change coming here. Mm -hmm. Um, so less that, um, and, and I can get, I can get to the reasons for that, uh, a bit later if you'd like, but, um, that was sort of one that was one aspect, uh, the, the sort of shift more towards administrative work, mm-hmm. um, becoming a field grade officer, uh, that, that was something that was challenging for me to sort of wrap my head around and, and be okay with. Um, 
in terms of CV22 specific stuff, challenging wise, um, you know, the, the CV22, I will say, does not have a good reputation for uh, maintenance capability. Uh, not, and, and I'm not talking about the capability of the maintainers, mm-hmm. right? Our maintainers were fantastic, fantastic individuals. It is a very complex aircraft. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of the first of its kind, right? So mm-hmm. there were a lot of lessons learned over the lifetime of the V-22 of like, hey, we should have designed this differently. Yeah, I guess we should have. But, okay. We, we bought, we already yeah, bought we are, a whole Yeah, we have of them, hundreds yeah. of these things yeah. now, so you can't really exactly get rid of them. Um, and so, you know, and I hope, you know, hopefully, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing with the uh, future vertical lift, uh, program that's happening over in the army, they're looking to replace their entire Blackhawk fleet with tilt rotors. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called the V two eighty Valor that that recently won the won the contract. Now, the con- from my understanding, the contract's being um, disputed by Sikorsky. Uh, I believe the Sikors- Sikorsky product, which is more of a traditional helicopter product um, than a, than a tilt rotor, but. If, if you know anything about acquisitions and contracting, you'll know trying to <laughs> big, you know, big purchases like that, big contracts almost always are disputed by the, by the loser. Like mm-hmm. that is just a truism in acquisitions world from what I've been told. So to see them, uh, to see Sikorsky do that is not surprising to me, nor do I think it will necessarily change the, the decision mm-hmm. made by the army. Um, but you know, my, my hope, sorry, going back to the point of that, my hope is that the V280, Bell's V280 product, will address a lot of the um, the ills of the, the mechanically of the V22. Very complex system. But, uh, and, and it seems, you know, one of the things that they've done is they've uh, made the engine uh, fixed laterally, and the transmission now is the only thing that tilts, right? Mm. So... In the V22, the engine is underslung underneath the transmission. The whole thing moves vertically. Well, one thing that we didn't really know at the time that we were developing it, but now we know, uh, is uh, turbine engines don't like to be or like stored vertically because all of the oil pools towards the exhaust section, and that's not good for a turbine engine, right? Hmm. Um, things that we didn't really know, yeah. uh, but now we do. So um, the V22 has some has some mechanical ills and it's not an easy plane to work on. If you ask any maintainer, any V22 maintainer, they will say that V22 is probably the most difficult plane they've ever worked on. Like almost all of them that I've talked to have said that, right? It's just hard to work on um, for whatever reason. Um, so that, you know, causes causes some other issues in terms of hey, how many planes are we going to have today to fly? Okay, well we're supposed to take out a three ship. We have one plane fantastic so and and you know i'll reiterate this is not a dig on the maintainers a lot of times these guys have a limited amount of time to deal with a plethora of problems and they're doing their best right um so sometimes it's just the way things the way things come out so that was that was a challenge that i would i would say most v22 guys will say that was a that was a challenge was you know, going into a day thinking that you're going to fly six hours and coming out of the day with, you know, 15 minutes of hover time before you, before the aircraft decided it, it wasn't going to fly. Today yeah, it's got to be frustrating. Right? So yeah, and, and, and that is certainly not a V-22 specific problem. Mm-hmm. Like that, there are a lot of airframes that have that issue. So 
but that was something that for, for me that was that that was a challenge and then um you know more from a from a leadership and uh culture standpoint you know you're gonna have you're gonna have good leaders and bad leaders in your career it's gonna happen um you're gonna have good peers and bad peers um you are gonna have to navigate through uh you know good relationships bad relationships uh no matter where you are um so that was a, a challenge that that i had that was yeah, like part of the air force experience mm-hmm. uh, part of the 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 great experience of being in the military is like yeah i had some some people who were frustrating to work for um and i credit them with improving my patience and tolerance and and like you learn you've probably heard this before you learn just as much if not more from the bad leaders mm-hmm. than you do from the good ones so you know when you see someone do something that you're like wow that was not very effective um, and I, and I think, uh, Jocko Willink and, and his, in his, uh, stuff has talked and, and I've listened to, listened to a lot of, uh, his material and I've gone to a conference, um, and met him. Um, and, uh, I would recommend by the way, any, any listeners to this or Andrew, you yourself, like if you ever get the chance to go to an echelon front conference, especially if someone else pays for the ticket, <laughs> you should go a hundred percent. It was a great experience. Okay. Um, you know, I, I would like to, to go through and, and think that everybody in this organization, you know, they, they all volunteered, right? Everybody you're serving next to volunteered in one way or another um, for one reason or another. So going, you, you got to kind of go in with the assumption and giving everybody the benefit of the doubt of like they are, they think they're doing what they think is right 99 times out of 100. So it's not a, it's, it's too easy to assign malice to these frustrating situations, right? Where you mm-hmm. run into person personality conflicts. Um, the, the challenge is, and something that, that challenged me and that I feel like I grew in and learned the most from, uh, was, was being patient and humble enough to give them the benefit of the doubt, try to try to gather more information before passing judgment. Mm. Um, that was, that was something that I really had to like learn and work on. Right. Cause like it was just, Oh, they're doing this thing. Oh, that's stupid. You know, they must, you know, they must be dumb. And you know, I just like in my head, it was just the voices of like discord, you know, all rising up together. Um, and it was, you know, I had a, I had a leader at my last unit. Um, name is Buck Kozlowski, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, fantastic guy, just super, super level-headed. I think I only saw him outside of his like steady state once or twice, like max, maybe mm-hmm. once. Um, and he's just super level-headed guy. Had to have been bad. What's that? Had to have been bad if he got out of that level state and he's oh, there, yeah. he got that type oh, of reputation. Yeah, yeah, you're like, oh yeah, if he, yeah. Um, no, he, he just had, he was super stable emotionally, I guess is like the easiest way to describe it. And one thing that I noticed repeatedly and learned and took a lot from this and learned from him was the first thing he did when he, you know, when he heard of or saw a decision that he disagreed with, where everyone else seemed to clamor for, to, to judgment and to, 
uh, and to just be like, oh, why do they do it that way? Oh, you know, grumble, grumble. He always, the first thing he would, he would do was gather more information. Mm-hmm. Well, why are they doing it that way? What are the assumptions that they're making? Do they have more information than we do? And, and oh man, like, yeah, it's like every really dropping your ego. Yeah, they every time. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like this person probably knows more than I do. And he, and he went into the assumption, he went into every conflict, I feel like, or, or every, every situation where judgment was so easily passed mm-hmm. and it just asked questions. That's all he did. Mm-hmm. And it was like so, so frustratingly simple. <laughs> just like watching him do this was like, why, like, why, that? like, yeah, like, why can't I be that cool? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, why, why? Why can't, why is that not my, um, initial reaction? So that dude, that was, that was a challenge for me in, in a positive way though. Like that was something that he taught me. Um, and I learned and really has like helped my, uh, my peace of mind and my acceptance of like, Hey, you know, the, the people making decisions above you, below you, you know, wherever, you know, a, a partner, a, a, a coworker, um, you, like if you, drastically disagree with a decision that's being made or, or whatever, like ask questions first. Um, because chances are you don't have all, all the pieces. Like you Mm -hmm. don't, you don't have all the information. Uh, and sometimes they do. Right. So, uh, that, that was, that was something I learned a ton from and like mad props to, I think Jocko touches on that a lot of catching a lot of data points because like mm-hmm. you're saying if you make decisions off of one or two mm-hmm. it's like i don't know i'm in stats right now and if you're trying to make a trend line off of two data points yeah. it could be way off <laughs> yeah. versus yep. if you have five or six so yeah um getting into your more separation yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. i we're i um, I'm going to be interviewing Colonel Rudder tomorrow, actually, about military money and retirement money vehicles and things like that. Okay. So if you have any any other points about separation that you think cadets, because I, I mm-hmm. haven't really ever talked to anyone about the separation yeah, 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 process, yeah. what types of kind of hoops you have to jump through, what yeah. jumps out of nowhere. Do you think you'd speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, do you want me to start with like the more financial stuff just because that's what you were just talking about or, or well, leave, I'm going to be covering that. it. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So I, I, I'll, I'll focus less on that then because whoever you're talking to probably is, is much more educated <laughs> on it than I am. Um, separation, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take this from it like a knuckle dragging pilot perspective, right? Like <laughs> your, your, your ultimate layman, um, separation has been interesting. So going into it, you know, I had, Choices to make coming up at the end of your active duty service commitment, you have, you have a, you have a choice. You you kind of have three choices, right? You can be if what I like to call the free agent. So Mm -hmm. the option number one, do nothing, right? Like, (laughs) like stay the course, like don't get out. Um, which is by the way, like this is an option that your enlisted, your enlisted brothers and sisters don't have. So like cherish this, this is an option that you have that they don't, Mm -hmm. um, is the, is the, uh, stay the course and do nothing. Uh, the, the current, the current vector option, which is stay in, but also like don't incur a more active duty service commitment. Um, and a lot of times that comes in the form of a like retention bonus of some kind. Right. Um, so you, 
there, there are a lot of positives to that. Um, you maintain the flexibility of a stable, um, employment via the military, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, do they not expect you to promote at a certain, or did you go out? No, of no, that, that actually is not, uh, to my knowledge, at least, excuse me, that is not the, that doesn't factor in. Okay. Um, you can still like, you can still promote just as well as anybody else, even if you're not under an active duty service commitment. Um, there are a couple things that will, will incur an active duty service commitment like school, um, PME. Uh, if you, if you go to ADS or ACSC, uh, you, you do incur a service commitment from that, mm-hmm. uh, de- you know, depending on what level and in residence versus not in residence, uh, you know, there, there are some opportunities that will incur an active duty service commitment or some sort of commitment to, to give, to pay back the thing that you've done. Right. Um, so school, uh, a lot of times will incur, a, uh, an active duty service commitment, uh, getting trained in another aircraft, um, those, those, those are the big two that really come to mind. So, so you can be a free agent pretty easily. Um, once you've hit the end of your pilot training commitment, uh, oh, while I'm thinking of it, speaking of active duty service commitments, uh, for your listeners, uh, or yourself who have wife slash kids in the near future, as soon as your uh, dependents are put into deers, transfer your GI bill benefits to them. Um, this is not talked about nearly enough as far as when I was a cadet, it wasn't talked about at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't find this out and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't find this out until I was a mid captain. Um, when you transfer your GI bill benefits to a dependent that costs you, I think it's four years, four year service commitment if I remember right. So if you don't realize that and you wait until oh, yeah. later in your career, you, you're like, Oh wow. I have to sign a four year contract to, to transfer my benefits to my, to my family. Um, so a, you know, foot stomp mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and tell all your troops this too, uh, is transfer those benefits as soon as humanly possible because you do not want to incur that as a, as a service commitment later. Um, so, so yeah, if you, if you manage to get to the end of your service commitment, um, you basically are in sort of free agent status. There's one other thing, uh, that incurs this service commitment is PCSing. Every time you PCS between bases, you incur uh, CONUS to CONUS, you incur a two year service commitment. Um, every time you move. So the idea is that they don't move you someplace new and then you say, sweet, yeah. thanks Air Force, peace, and you and you get out like the next week, right? Yeah. So there's some cost that's incurred by the Air Force to move you. So the assumption is that you're going to stay where they put you for a bit. <clears throat> so that brings into the conversation of uh, retainability. Um, if you are outside of a service commitment and they try to move you, PCS you somewhere, um, you can do what's called a seven-day opt which is, uh, and, and some, someone who's smarter on me uh, on this than I am can, can correct me. Um, basically it's, it's saying, okay, I don't like where you're trying to tell me to go. No, I'm not going. But the implication is within, I think it's 
That's why they call seven it seven days. days. Within seven days, you basically have to apply for separation from the Air Force at that point. That's a um, big, quick right. decision. Um, now, that doesn't mean you have to be gone from the Air Force within those seven days. That just means you have to apply for separation. Isn't it like a six-month notice you said? It is right? a six-month, yeah. yeah. So you have six months from there uh, typically to, to, uh, to leave the military. So, um, and I think it's maximum of six months at that point. Uh, so then you go through the, the transition process. Um, the second path, uh, is the, you know, I don't care. I'm taking it to 20 years and beyond. I'm going to stay in the air force path. So I'm going to try to get as much out of my service as possible. Uh, which means chances are if, if you're financially savvy and you're going to stay in active duty air force anyways, might as well take the retention bonus, right? Because you were going to stay in anyways. Because mm-hmm. um, those retention bonuses obviously retain you. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a give and take deal. So you sign an active duty service commitment, um, uh, and and those can be signed. You know, typically when the retention and this is specifically for aviation retention that I'm talking about here. So as pilots, this is your your, your future pilots is who I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, if they want to, you know, if for whatever reason they see your career field, your, your specific, uh, pilot group, uh, fighters, bombers, heavies, helicopter rescue, reconnaissance, those, um, special operations, 11 S, uh, will either have, you know, they'll either will or will not, or have a different level of bonus per number of years that you sign the bonus for. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times the these bonuses come, you know, with an option to take a lump sum, to take it, you know, once a year for a higher amount or whatever. You know, they, they'll, they kind of massage the, the numbers to make it attractive uh, and try to keep people in. So that's that's option two, right? Um, and then option three is uh, get out, uh, go go civilian side, say thank you, you know, thank thank the Air Force for their time and tutelage, and you move on with your own life, which is the the direction I'm going. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the factors that sort of led me and I, and I kind of wrote these down cause I, I wanted to think about it and, and, um, uh, give you, give you an idea of what prompted me to, to make the decision to, to separate at the end of my yeah, pil- actually pilot training service. The first time. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, my, my, the things that I weighed were the stability and the comfort of staying with what I already know, right? At this point in my career, I more or less know what the future is going to look like for me, ish. Um, not not in terms of like I know exactly what assignments I'm going to have, but but I know what being in the Air Force feels like. I've been doing it for almost 12 years. Like I got a decent idea of as long as nothing major changes, my life's going to look roughly like this for the next eight years until I retire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a positive, right? Like. The, the knowledge and the stability, the lack of chaos of like, what's my next job going to be? When's my next paycheck going to arrive? It's going to arrive on the first and the 15th, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Um, and I'm not definitely not digging on that. Like that is, that's a huge benefit, uh, is the stability of income. Like as long as the U S government is functioning, you go and get paid. Yeah. Uh, which is nice. Um, huge, you know, huge benefit there, the stability, um, in that regard the um, opportunity to continue do- doing exciting things and working with very competent people. That is a huge positive that made me want to stay. The, 
if, if nothing else, the, the biggest benefit that I feel like I've gotten in the air force is the relationships that I've, that I've made. Um, the experience has been great. I've, I've done some really cool and awesome things. Um, but uh, you know, wouldn't trade them for the people, uh, really, really wouldn't. And, and I think you'll find most of the people at the end of their career will say that like, yeah, great opportunities, you know, Air Force trained me to do all sorts of things. They, they paid for all sorts of crazy training and, and whatnot, which is great. Made me a better person. Fantastic. Thank mm-hmm. you. But the people is what made it um, by far. Uh, the, the relationships, the friendships, the, the mentorship, the, uh, all, all of those relationships that I've made definitely are massively in the positive side of this equation as to making me want to stay because the quality of people you get to work with in the air force is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Just really, really, really high quality, uh, and, and massive plug for, for AFSOC, especially for me, I felt like I had the opportunity to work daily with extremely high quality people that really believed in the mission. Um, which was, which was huge positive for me, right? Making me want to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, the, you know, those, those are the two, two big things that, that stability piece, the, the, Hey, I'm already doing it. It's what I know. Uh, and, and the people, um, the pension, I thought about it. It didn't, it didn't weigh as much in my head as I thought it was going to when I really did some navel gazing, some introspection. Um, it was, it was nice to have, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't something that was going to change be like a major factor to change my decision whether to get in, in or out. Do you say that because you're just confident in your ability to make money in the civilian sector or maybe retirement yeah, from uh, other? That, no, that's, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's probably a big part of it is just, and not, you know, I, I don't mean to sound, I certainly don't want to sound arrogant. Like dude, anything can happen. Like the, the economy can change at a moment's notice. There, there, you know, there's no real guarantee to save yourself from something crazy happening and losing your job. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in private sector. Um, but yeah, the, certainly the positive job aspects that are the, or the pro- positive job prospects on the outside were, were a huge part of making me making that decision. Right. If I thought that I wouldn't be able to support my family because I had a military only skill set that was not relatable in any way to the outside, then I would stay in mm. for sure. Um, but that's not the case. And, and honestly, just, you know, the, the very general skills that everybody in the military can pick up over time, uh, because the environment that the military is the, the, the leadership environment, especially in the, in the air force, especially with officership, um, I don't think that really exists. I don't think there is a job in the air force where you're like, well, I've painted myself into a corner and I can never work in private sector. Like that's not a thing. Um, I, I think it's not the same well, as like a Marine Corps infantryman. Well, it, but that's the thing is I think, you know, the Marine Corps infantryman has, has immediate quick thinking frontline leadership experience that you can't, it's less tangible. Experience yeah, yeah, right. It's it's or skills. it's not the yeah right. It's not the the you know point point shoot squad tactics thing may itself may not be directly applicable to the outside, but like the ability to think on your feet, to think critically, to lead a group of people, to do it efficiently enough where you can make a decision in about five seconds, is like that's 
that's huge. Like mm. that's incredibly marketable on the outside. Um, and so like even the things that you think are like, oh, that's so niche military. Like that, that can't put that out of your mind. I, I would challenge anyone to find a, a job in the military to find an, uh, AC, uh, uh, you know, to find, yeah, I would try, I, I would challenge anybody to find a job in the military that, that could not be applied easily to private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that specific job doesn't, the skills that you, that you get from it certainly are. And I, you know, from what I have heard, uh, I, I can't speak authoritatively on this cause I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, I'm not the person hiring people. <laughs> From what I've heard, there is certainly a uh, a positive weight given to military service by private companies, not just because they're patriotic and they you know they want to hire veterans. There is a little bit of that in some some industries I know, but more because the the military in general and and I think officership and leadership especially um, has has a lot of intangibles in terms of bringing in somebody who's a team player, someone who communicates well, someone who works well with others, someone who can lead the, the, the softer side, mm-hmm. you can bring in someone that is more or less guaranteed to have those things. Yeah. At the very least, a military person will be of some use in a leadership, which is that's, I think that's pretty difficult to kind of develop if you mm. have no experience in kind of, like yeah. you, you might have someone who's really experienced in sports leadership positions, mm-hmm. which might correlate to a job leadership, mm-hmm. but you might have a whole bunch of people who just kind of were introverts their whole high school, college yep. career and don't have those things. Right. Yeah. And, and who, you know, Hey, they may have an Ivy league degree and like look great on paper academically. Right. But, but none of those things, none of those things necessarily point to an ability to, to lead others, uh, or to, to lead and work well in a team. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, th- those are things I, I think uniquely to the, maybe not exclusively to the military, but very unique thing, uh, that, that teamwork loyalty and, and, um, leadership aspect that the military brings. So, uh, I don't think you're going to find people that will have a hard time leaving the Air Force Academy, going, you know, going and working their time in the Air Force and then getting out. God willing, if the economy is is doing well, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people that are going to have a hard time finding a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that the marketability of the outside was a big factor for me, um, was I felt pretty confident based on my friends who were going through it, um, my friends who had already gone through it, uh, people far, far smarter than me, uh, on, you know, the aviation industry in general who were saying, Hey man, like if you're going to get out, now's the time. There's a lot of movement, um, in, in the private aviation or the the commercial aviation business. I always Um, like in the airports, I see now hiring by all. Oh yeah. 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 A lot of dude, there's a lot of hiring, a lot of mobility, uh, in, in the aviation sector right now for pilots and, and it, yeah, it's putting a pressure. I would, I would imagine I'm not, I'm not, uh, let's say I'm not, I'm not in the, in the a one office, uh, in the air force regularly. Uh, but, uh, I can imagine it's putting some pressure on the air force to try to figure out how to retain their pilots. Mm. Um, how, how to, uh, you know, get more interest in going into it. How do we, how do, you know, it's, it's a, a complex, very complex problem, 
not only how do you retain your talent, but how do you maintain your inflow, your, your, your influx of, of new talent? Um, you know, how do we solve issues with maintenance and pilot training, right? That's, that's something that's happening right now is the, um, there are engine issues with the T38, which is causing, you know, backwards pressure on the pipeline, mm -hmm. um, all the way back through the T6s and, and, and people are kind of sitting waiting for pilot training dates for a while now. So, um, there's seven to the rescue. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> man. And, but you know, don't hold your breath because every aircraft has its, has its things. Um, and you know, you, it might be super exciting at first and then you realize there's a design flaw somewhere and, and, and it could be, it could be a huge headache. Right. So fingers right, crossed. Yeah, fingers right. Crossed. <laughs> exactly. There's no guarantees in this business. Um, yeah, I, I hope I, I really do. I hope the, the next jet trainer is fantastic. Um, you know, I, I think our, I think our future pilots deserve it. Um, and, and I really hope for success there, but that's one of those things that, you know, I I've seen enough, go right, go wrong, go right, go wrong, uh, in, in terms of maintaining a healthy fleet of aircraft that I, uh, I've learned not to hold my breath with new aircraft acquisitions. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Mm. Um, if it's great, great. <laughs> I hope it is. I certainly won't be betting any money. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, sir, um, if that's all you have, you've dropped some serious gems on us tonight. <laughs> I, um, I appreciate that. Whether it was intentional <laughs> or not, I remember a few of them just came off the top of your head. Um, do you have any closing remarks you want to leave cadets with advice? Anyone looking to commission, really? Yeah, yeah, man. So um, coming from, and, and this is, you know, in context is important on this in this advice, right? You know, you're going to get advice from a lot of different people, and I hope you do. I hope you guys go talk to a lot of different officers, you know, officers like me who are separating at the, you know, they consider themselves at their end of their active duty career. Um, you know, talk to your reservists, talk to your people in the guard, talk to space force people, like get, get a broad perspective. Um, cause you, you know, gather, gather all that data, all you statisticians out there, gather, you know, gather, gather the data, uh, and, and you're going to, you can make an informed decision at that point. Um, my, uh, my parting, my parting shot for y'all would be, you know, try to try your best to maintain the, maintain that excitement. Um, I, I, there is certainly, there was for me, um, and I would imagine for a lot of your listeners, there will be a lot of excitement for your future careers, a lot of excitement for, um, especially the, the aviation guys who have just been like, oh man, I, I want to be an Air Force pilot. I want to be an Air Force pilot. Um, that excitement is good and it's healthy and it's what's going to help you stay motivated and, and, and on, you know, on the right path when things get difficult and they will like guarantee you if there's anything I can bet right now on the table, it would be like your life's going to be hard at some point in the next couple of years <laughs> during training, like virtually guaranteed. Right. Um, it's and, just already hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's gonna, it's gonna, it will be hard. Right. Um, you graduating is not the end of the difficulty. I'm sorry to say, um, it's a great way to prepare you for more difficulty later. Uh, surprise. Uh, so main, you know, 
whatever you have that's keeping you going, keeping you excited, um, definitely can, you know, feed that, feed that wolf, Mm -hmm. um, keep that fed, but also, um, temper that. And what I, what I mean by that is if I could go back, uh, and change anything about the decisions I made at the Academy choice, you know, choices in terms of like going, you know, Hey, I really want to be a pilot. Um, cause I had a couple different decisions to make. Uh, you know, I was looking at being a six, two developmental engineer. I was like possibly being a pilot. Um, and, and I was really excited about, uh, being, a, you know, being in aviation, being in a, being a pilot which just really, really spoke to me, uh, on a visceral level and, and really drew me. Um, and, and that is as much thought as I gave the decision, I think, um, which I think was a mistake uh, on my part. Now I'm trying to give myself a little bit of like benefit of the doubt. Like that's just how my younger brain worked, mm-hmm. uh, was the excitement like took up everything and I had no more room. F- I had no room for like some, some like sober introspection. So if there's a piece of advice I can give is, you know, feed that excitement, ha- you know, keep it alive, keep it motivating you, but take some time to do serious, sober analysis and introspection of what you want to do with your career. Um, now I'm not saying you need to like sit down and plan your whole life out right now. Cause like, first of all, that's an exercise in futility because your career is not going to look anything like what you thought it would like just you know, let that go. But what I mean is do some introspection of your, the things that motivate you at, you know, ask yourself, why do I want to do these things? Right. And it might not change your decision. Like it, w- I don't think it would have for me. If I could go back, I wish I would have attacked the decision to go to pilot training to, you know, which way I wanted my career to go. I would have, I, I wish I would have made that decision with a more sober analytical, um, introspective mind. Like, well, okay, what, you know, why do I really want to do that? What's the motivation there? Is it because, you know, my, my parents really wanted me to do it? Is it because it's, you know, it's sexy and it's in the movies? Is it because I think it will be great on the outside? It could be none of those. It could be all of those, but like find, find, you know, really do some introspection on the things that are motivating you, mm-hmm. um, so that you can make the decision and not just so that you can make the right decision for you, but also so that you can live better with that decision. Um, so that you can feel like you didn't, so you, you, you know, no eliminate regret. regret. Yeah. Exactly. You're eliminating regret at that point because it's like, Hey, look, if, if I know that it was, I was in the right state of mind when I made this massive life decision, right? Like a 10 year active duty service commitment post pilot training, right? So that, you know, if you're going into pilot training right now, you're being delayed, whatever, say it takes you a year and a half, two years to get through pilot training. Just rough estimate, right? It was roughly that for me. It was a year and a half, two years. So maybe even longer for, for y'all, depending on what the delay in the pipeline is. So that, then you get your wings. Then the 10 years starts, right? 10 years is a long time. It really is. Um, for, for your young like professional career. 10 years is not nothing. So go into that with a sober mind 
of like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm making a sacrifice, right? I'm sacrificing 10 years of flexibility where I can't just do what I want, that the military is going to tell me what to do for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, approach that with some sobriety of mind and some maturity. And, and I think, you know, it may not change your decision. It wouldn't have for me, I don't think. Um, but certainly you will be happier with the decision that you did make because you will have known that you you went about it in a mature sober way mm-hmm. i guess is the is the advice it's it's very touchy feely meta you know getting in your know, psychology getting inside your own head sort of thing mm-hmm. advice um but i think that's advice that can apply to every graduate out of here it's not hey you know make sure you go helicopters yeah. like i'm not going to give you that kind of advice because that that's only going to apply to a couple people mm-hmm. but yeah um and, and just um, just, and this is going to sound so silly parting shot is just be a good person. And like, and I, and I don't, I don't mean that in terms of like be of upstanding moral character. Like, yeah. Okay, great. Like, cool. You guys have certainly had enough of lectures about that. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm talking about just work on your interpersonal skills. Um, because like when all else falls out, you like, the other people in the air force is going to be a constant, right? So if you are a person that finds yourself constantly, uh, in conflict with others in a negative way, uh, work on that. Uh, don't expect the rest of the world to get out of your way. Um, be, you know, ask yourself is, you know, is what I'm doing positively affecting the people around me? Um, because that is a universal, uh, you know, inside, outside the military, whatever. Uh, if you're just, you know, if you're just focused on, uh, being, being a good dude, like just being a good person, uh, to other people around you, you'll find like that will, that will overcome a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of negatives can be overcome with just like, well, Hey, he made this mistake. She made this mistake, whatever. But man, they're great to be around. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that sentence in its <laughs> various forms said in the squadron, in leadership, in you know decisions on whether or not to put somebody in a position. A lot of times it comes down to, yeah, but do I want to be around this person? Um, because that that change it like that quality is weighted very highly in the minds of others. And I'm not saying to obsess about yeah, what other think fan, what yeah. right exactly. Don't be a sick fan. Don't like don't obsess about what other people think of you, but certainly go into every personal interaction with someone else with the mind of being a positive force in their life. Mm-hmm. I guess is the easiest way I can distill that down, and and I think you'll you'll find that that will um, that that will make your career much more enjoyable. Um, it will improve the productivity of the teams that you're in. It will, um, it, your, your outlook on, on your own self, your own career will be improved. Um, so really, really focus on those interpersonal personal relationships cause they really, really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it, man. That's all I got. It's a lot. Sorry. No, <laughs> like I said, gems, nuggets, what the wing needs to hear. 
<laughs> I was like, I was when you were saying when you were talking about like, get all these data points. I'm like, when is he gonna plug the podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, re, re, yeah. Listen to the listen to the other episodes of the podcast. Definitely. <laughs> well, sir, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been yeah. my pleasure speaking with you. Oh, dude, as, likewise. As much as Absolutely. this whole kind of project has brought us together and been yeah. able to talk. I've really appreciated all of this. Of course. So, of course. Thank you. Yeah. And, and man, honestly, anytime, uh, if, uh, if you find an opportunity later to do like a board of people or whatever, I'd love to, I'd love to come back and continue. Um, if anybody, um, anybody out there, uh, on your podcast reaches out to you and asks for my information, freely give it, please. My, mm-hmm. my, my phone number will stay the same probably for the rest, <laughs> you know, hopefully for the rest of my life. Uh, email likewise. So you, you have my contact information, uh, for any listeners. If you, if you have any more questions, um, I am, I would love to love to answer them directly. Uh, so please, yeah, please reach out to Andrew and and he'll get you in touch. Thank you, sir. Well, there you have it. Major Drew Whitney and his career as an Osprey pilot. Feedback is much appreciated, so please let me know if you prefer a two-parter or if longer form works fine. Thanks for listening. Cormac.